0: All right, let's take our Bibles once again, and we'll turn to Psalm 145. I thought it would be appropriate today on Thanksgiving week to go through one of the many psalms of praise. And this particular psalm of David, which introduces the Hallel, or the last five praise psalms of the book, uh, in order to composed this psalm, David had to ponder certain truths about the Lord. And in the words of C.H. Spurgeon, it seems then, dear friends, that David studied the character and doings of God and thus praised him. Knowledge should lead our song. The more we know of God, the more acceptably shall we bless him through Jesus Christ. Spurgeon, known as the Prince of Preachers, brought up another good point on this psalm that speaks about our great God. He said, I consider that one of the great lacks of the church nowadays, and that was a long time ago, is not so much Christian preaching as Christian talking, not so much Christian prayer in the prayer meeting as Christian conversation in the parlor. How little do we hear concerning Christ? Is this not true of us today? How often do we hear or speak of these great things about the Lord outside of these four walls? Yet the psalmist penned this poem for the purpose of corporate praise of God's people singing this uh, to each other and to the Lord, uh, more so than personal praise, but if you look at verse 4, it says, One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. And then in verse 10, One generation shall praise your works uh, but, uh, to, an, uh, to another. So your saints will bless you, not just in this one place, but everywhere they go. So that suggests that we praise the Lord not just when we come to church, but really every day, wherever we're at, especially in our homes. Uh, Let me remind you of many words that King David spoke in this Psalm, of course being inspired by God. He says, I will extol, bless, praise, utter, and sing the praises of God to another. Then the saints bless, speak, talk, and make known praiseworthy virtues of the Lord. And he closes the psalm in similar terms in verse 21, My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh shall bless his holy name. So he's using several words to express praise to the Lord. And we ought to use that as a pattern uh, in our own life of praising God. And as we look at his word today, let's uh, consider the reasons we ought to praise the Lord, and let's try to do so more openly, and uh, not just in a public way, but in the privacy of our homes and our own worship. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful today for the book of Psalms. We're thankful, Lord, for its many praises and the reasons that David and other psalmists give to praise you. Lord, we would ask you to forgive us because very often we complain and we gripe about things in the world instead of turning things into praise. Help us, Lord, to think of your uh, greatness and of your mighty works and of all the things that you've done uh, to save us. And help us, Lord, to uh, be people of praise and thanksgiving, not just during certain times of the year, but each and every day. So bless our study this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in this psalm, David gives us some pointers as to how we should praise the Lord. We should do so reverently, giving the Lord the full honor and respect that he deserves from us. We should do it consistently, as he says, every day I will do this. So, a daily basis, realizing that we're citizens of Uh, both of time, but also of eternity. And then, uh, very clearly, as we've already read, we should do this publicly as well as privately. And uh, David uses a lot of uh, different verbs and and, uh, uh, words for this as he gives thanksgiving to God and leads us to do the same thing. He then focuses on God's mighty works and uh, acts in verses 4 through 6. He cites the Lord's creative power and majesty, but this morning we're going to consider uh, two reasons for praising the Lord that we find in this uh, great psalm. First of all, we praise him for the greatness of his virtues and then the greatness of his kingdom to which we belong through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So first of all, let's consider that we praise God for the greatness of his virtues or his attributes or what he is like as a personal being. Now, first of all, there are two adjectives that generally describe the person of God. And that's the word greatness and majesty. In verse three, David says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. We can study it, but we can't fully fathom it. So let's consider that idea of greatness here. Uh, The psalmist uses this term three times of the Lord, and he attaches it to two attributes of the Lord. Uh, When use of God, it describes his immensity, his importance, his superiority to all things. And and these things, as he mentions, are unsearchable or really we can't fully comprehend them as human beings. Webster's Dictionary includes the concepts of excellence, markedly superior character, quality, or skill, and of course all that applies to God. He is so great that even when we study his word and we understand so much about him, we still cannot really grasp it all. And even though we have uh, his revelation, there are still many aspects of it uh, that are beyond uh, human understanding. And that's what makes him God and makes us not God. And unfortunately, some people don't realize that. And since he's eminently greater than all his creatures, he indeed should greatly be praised. Back in Psalm 96, uh, we're instructed in verse 4, "...for the Lord is great, and greatly to be praised. He is be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens." So He's compared here to gods, but that doesn't mean in reality there are other gods. We have to remember that much of the Bible was given to us in periods of time of polytheism. People had all sorts of gods they worshipped. Did that mean they were real? No, but in comparison to that, uh, the Lord is great, and all the other gods are, are merely idols. They're the figments of man's Uh, imagination. So if there's only one true and glorious God, he's the one that ought to be worshipped. Then in verse 5, going back to to Psalm 145, uh, David says, I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty. So here we have that word majesty ascribed from God. Uh, This word is translated in numerous ways. It can mean excellence, honor, or glory. It comes from a root meaning grandeur or having an imposing form or appearance. Now, of course, no man has seen God, but whenever we have biblical descriptions, uh, it always is related to his glory, his brightness, his shining, uh, his majesty, that really can't be taken in by human beings. And so whoever has a vision of that nature ends up falling down prostrate before God and actually fearing for their life because they're in the presence of Almighty God. We have that uh, 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 phrase, glorious splendor. This is the same word repeated twice for emphasis. And this conveys the idea of being weighted or weighed down with honor and glory. Uh, It describes the unmatched excellence of God that is worthy of our esteem. Uh, There are are people in the world that uh, we would probably view as having glory or having a weight of honor, so to speak. And uh, people who hold high office, they have a position uh, where they should be uh, esteemed because of that position. Not necessarily because they're greater good as far as being a person, but being in a position of a king or a president or a prime minister, the office itself is one of honor or should be shown honor. In comparison to that, though, and God... Well, there's really not a whole lot of comparison. There's nothing in this world uh, or the next that's greater than the the Lord in glory and majesty. And so we should convey to him uh, our respect, our love, our honor, and glorify him. Now, in addition to God's greatness and majesty, we also see here some specific virtues of our great God. So let's take a look at some of these. The first one is that of goodness. God is inherently good. Verse 7 says, they shall utter the memory of your great goodness. And then in verse 9, the Lord is good to all. This is the quality of God. Uh, Sometimes we allude to people as being good because they're kind or they're helpful or they're good-natured. We view many Bible characters as good, such as uh, Abraham and Moses and King David and the apostles and Paul. But all of these men realized that they were not inherently good. They were inherently sinful, and they needed God, who is good, to make them good. It is difficult again for us to fully comprehend this perfection of God because our nature is not good. Our concept of what of good uh, is good is marred by the fall. Uh, the word great here means to bubble over, which suggests that his goodness is exceeds our understanding. And of course, God's goodness is perfect. He cannot do evil. He cannot even think evil. He's good all the time, as it mentions here. Verse 9 says that he's good to all of his creatures, and the rest of the psalm from that point forward demonstrates that goodness. So when we think about what is truly good, we have to think about God and what comes from Him and what He is like. It also mentioned here His righteousness, which is closely linked to His goodness. Again in verse 7, uh, and shall sing of your righteousness. And then in verse 17, the Lord is righteous in all His ways. So another perfect quality of God. That's associated with this goodness, because God is good. He is righteous and he is just. Again, he cannot do wrong. He cannot do uh, be unjust. Uh, he can't judge incorrectly. And again, just like we do not inherent uh, or we do not possess inherent goodness, we do not have righteous character either without it being imputed to us from God. That's what he does in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we come to the place where we're saved, he, uh, he sees us through the righteousness of his son, and he imputes to us the righteousness of Christ. That means he, he places it upon us. So we're cleansed of our sin, we're forgiven, and now we have a new capacity to be righteous However, we will never be like God who always has been perfect in righteousness uh, until we uh, are with him in heaven. Now, verses 8 and 9, we we kind of have a series of attributes uh, that are related to his mercy and his grace. So let's take a look at those as we go to verse 8. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger, and great in mercy. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his work. So in those two verses, uh, we have some other wonderful attributes. First of all, the Lord is gracious. So that means he displays toward us favor that is undeserved, that's unmerited, and uh, this grace is generally bestowed on everybody. People don't even realize that, but uh, every day God sustains his creatures. He does so even though we don't deserve it, even though we do things wrong and outside of his will. Many times people don't even realize that they're displeasing God, and uh, he still takes care of them, and he provides for them, even though there's no reason he should do that. He also does not require of us the penalty of sin every time we commit it. In the New Testament, we're told that uh, the wages of sin is death, right? So that means that every time we sin, we deserve to die for it, but God is not demanding that of us. He's not going to exact that of us. He's going to give us many, many years to recognize who he is, what sinfulness is, to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. So his grace gives us what we don't deserve. It especially is given to those who do turn to Christ from their sin and confess Jesus as their Savior. Now, mercy is also mentioned here. Uh, Again, not always translated in that way, but in verse 9, where it says tender mercies and also full of compassion back in verse 8, this is the idea of God's mercy. This is related to pity, but it means that God feels sorrowful over our sinful condition. He cares about us He desires for us to come to him in faith, and as we mentioned, in grace, God gives us what we do not deserve, but in mercy, God does not give us what we do deserve. So it's kind of reversed a little bit there. Mercy implies the idea of pity, but not just feeling sorry for somebody, feeling bad about their condition, Uh, God in mercy and grace does something to change that condition, to make it better. That's what he did when he sent Christ into the world. Uh, uh, He alleviates our condition of sinfulness through Christ who died in our place. So he not only empathizes with our need, but he's done something to alleviate that need. Uh, He's made a way for us to get out from the condemnation of sin and come into his uh, loving favor. It goes on to say in these verses that the Lord is slow to anger. That's a quality that we all need, isn't it? To be slow to anger. Uh, This is an interesting phrase because it literally means to be of long nostrils. And you kind of wonder, well, is that just a human characteristic? Uh, But what this carries in its meaning is one who restrains his anger. Sometimes you may be angry with somebody, and before you say anything, or maybe instead of saying anything, you take in a really deep breath, and when you do that, you're flaring your nostrils. And that's the idea here of taking a big breath, holding back your anger. That's the way the Lord is. Now in another psalm, it says the Lord is angry with the wicked every day, but he holds back the display of that anger and the letting out of that anger in his mercy and his grace. So this is the idea of being slow to anger, being long-suffering to those who are sinful and rebellious against the Lord. And he provides many opportunities for people to repent and turn to him uh, and not portraying to them the anger, the wrath that is their due. If we think about the history of Israel, we see this repeated many times how God restrained his anger. Think of the many times that he warned them of what would happen to them if they continued in their rebellious ways. And uh, he He held off his judgment for centuries. But he won't always do that if people won't turn to him. Now, in verse 8, we also have another great attribute of God, and that's uh, his loyal love. Now, back up in verse 8, it mentions great in mercy. Now, that's a different word, and this word is the word that means loyal covenant love. It's the Hebrew word Hased. So, uh, this is what the Lord displays toward those who put their faith and trust in him. Uh, Again, uh, it's the faithful love that God promised to the nation of Israel in his many covenants with them. Uh, It was independent of their actions toward him. They proved to be unfaithful time and time again, upholding their side of the covenant, but God was never unfaithful on his side. He was always loving. He was always true. He was always uh, fulfilling his responsibilities. Uh, This also undergirds the new covenant uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ when he came into the world to provide our salvation. So uh, again, the Lord is loyal in his love, in his faithfulness, and so no wonder the psalmist praises him every day. He's experienced God's grace, he's experienced God's mercy, his long-suffering, his loving kindness. So these are reasons that he has to praise the Lord on a daily basis. Now, all of these qualities are fully displayed in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who came into the world to save us. Our understanding of these virtues of God Uh, should be greater than David's because of the coming of Christ, yet how often do we take time personally to thank God for these types of things rather than just the things God gives us? Our understanding of these virtues ought to cause us to praise the Lord uh, in the same way David did so many years ago. Now, we also want to look at the next few verses, beginning in verse 10, that show us we should praise God for the greatness of his kingdom. So if God is a king, as David mentions here a couple times, then he must rule over a kingdom. And verse 10 kind of introduces this thought. All your works uh, shall praise you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power. So the kingdom back in David's time would have been more a reality to them than sometimes it is to us today because there were kingdoms of the earth, one being the nation of Israel. And there was a close relationship between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Israel because that's the nation he chose uh, to proclaim himself to the world. Now today, we don't think so much in terms of kingdoms, but we think of rulers and we think of nations. And so the concept is a little different for us today. So let's take a look at this. Now, all of God's works, in verse 10, pertain to this kingdom over which he reigns, he rules, he has dominion over uh, uh, this kingdom. All of God's saints, which would be the believers in him, are part of that kingdom, and one day they will visibly rule with him, they'll bless God, they'll bow the knee uh, as members of his kingdom. And the kingdom of God is ever-present. Look at verse uh, uh, 13. Back up in the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Then verse 13, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. So here we're talking about something that lasts forever. It's not necessarily visible at this time. It's never fully been visible in this world, but one day it will be. So man in his lost condition is constantly rebelling against God and the rule of God, which is the idea, the concept of his kingdom. And some even try to deny his existence today. Back in the second psalm, uh, we're reminded right off of the bat, this rebellion of humanity toward God. In Psalm 2, we read, Why do the nations rage, and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. So every nation that denies the Lord that rejects his word is included in this. The nations, the kingdoms of the world are standing in rebellion against God if they will not comply with uh, his word and his person, and they're eventually going to be judged for that. So this is the natural condition of humanity. <clears throat> but his rule is established by virtue of his creation. He brought the world into being. He also brought the nations into being. You go back to Genesis chapter 10, the first establishment of nations. Now you have, I don't know how many, uh, a couple hundred almost, I think, nations today. But if you read the history books of the Bible, you're going to find many examples of God's kingdom God's authority, God's rule intervening in the affairs of men and their governments. How many times did he deliver Israel out of impossible situations related to other nations warring against them? How many times did God raise up a nation to chastise and destroy another nation, and then when that nation would not comply with his will, he raised up still another nation to chastise them? So the Lord is the one who is in authority over the world, whether we want to believe or accept that or not. Daniel prophesied the rise of five earthly kingdoms that stretch from ancient Babylon to the future reign of the Antichrist. So think of God's intervention. For instance, at the birth of the Lord Jesus, where Caesar Augustus, the world emperor, calls for the a census in order to tax the nations under his power, And that brought Mary and Joseph to the town that the prophets had said Jesus would be born, Bethlehem. So that's just one small example of how God uh, orchestrates the things of man to bring about his will and fulfill his word. God rules over the affairs of men, but his kingdom and dominion exceed the affairs of men. So let's take a look at that in verse 11. Okay, your saints shall bless you, they shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power. We don't do that nearly as much as we talk about earthly kingdoms. We don't talk about God's power and God's kingdom and God's glory and God's majesty, we're worried about what's going on in our world. But note here that his kingdom is glorious and powerful. These are the same words that describe the Lord. So how could his kingdom, his rule, be any less glorious? It is so because it's spiritual in nature, it's heavenly in nature, it's eternal in nature. And this is what Jesus and the disciples taught in the Gospels. They proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. They repeatedly said the kingdom of God was near. Jesus once said the kingdom of God is in you. So that means his authority, his rule is in you who believe. That's the way it was in the person of the Lord Jesus. And how was that kingdom displayed in him? Well, uh, his power is demonstrated in the miracles that he did, miracles the apostles did. What they performed could not be done by human uh, means. It was through the power of God, which showed that his kingdom far exceeds human ability and might. And the gospel of Jesus is the chief display of the power in God's kingdom, the power to save people from their sins and uh, provide for them an eternal home. Speaking about this, Paul wrote in Romans 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, uh, of, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. The gospel is the power of God. He wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, For the preaching of the cross is of them that perish foolishness, but in us which are saved, it's the power of God. So the gospel of Christ is at the center of the kingdom of God and is its power. Now, God's kingdom also, in verse 13, is spiritual and everlasting. Sometimes we think that the kingdoms of the earth are very powerful. That's true, humanly speaking, long-lasting. You think about ancient history, Egypt. And Syria, Assyria, Babylon, Greece, Rome, these are all nations that controlled vast portions of the world. They exerted uh, tremendous uh, influence and power over human beings, but over time, what happened to all of them? They passed off the scene. (coughs) The same is true of the modern era. You think of the British Empire, uh, the Third Reich, the old USSR, the United States, China. These are uh, powerful nations. They have influence. They may continue to have influence, but they are temporal and they are passing. Not so the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God never fades. It never passes away. It's going to be here forever. So it would be wise for us then to consider how to be part of that kingdom that's everlasting. And we really kind of noted that in the last part of this psalm, beginning in verse 18. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He also will hear their cry and save them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. So the idea is, if we call upon the Lord, if we trust him, if we pray, if we love him, well, we're part of that kingdom. Jesus mentioned entrance into the kingdom in his conversation with Nicodemus. Do you remember that? Except a man be what? Born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. If he's not born of the Spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. He told his disciples and those who gathered around him, except you be converted and become as little children, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Of course, he's talking about childlike faith, trusting him to be your Savior. That's how you're converted. That's how you're born again, is receiving the Lord Jesus as your personal Savior. That's what makes this conce- these concepts of grace, mercy, love, all personal to us. That's what makes uh, or demonstrate God's power over sin, rebellion, death, and hell. So this is what makes the kingdom of God so glorious and majestic. So how do we respond to these truths today? Well, obviously, (coughs) we follow uh, David the psalmist by praising God. We praise the Lord for who he is. All too often, we just thank God for all the good stuff he's given us. All too often, uh, we just think about material blessings. Well, what do people do in Africa and China and India who have hardly anything of what we have. How are they going to praise God for those kind of things? Well, we need to be thinking about these spiritual attributes of God. uh, Praise Him because of His goodness and His righteousness, His grace, His mercy, His long-suffering, and His loving-kindness to us. We should be thankful that there exists a being who is perfect in every way, yet he still cares about me and you. But then we can also praise him because he's chosen to condescend to us. Despite our inherent sinfulness, he extends to us through the Lord Jesus Christ, his mercy, his grace, his righteousness, all the attributes that we can have as a believer. All of our spiritual blessings come from God and we also praise him for being citizens in his kingdom. We're often spoken of as fellow heirs of the kingdom with Christ. So that gives a great deal of comfort when we feel dismayed about the direction of human affairs. What's going on in the world? How corrupt and evil and rebellious toward God can we all become in, the, in a nation? you got to remember the Lord's Allowing all this to happen, but we have to remember that we're not citizens of this world. We're citizens of a heavenly one. And someday he's coming again to set all things straight. And when that kingdom appears, we'll be its citizens. And then there's the concept here of proclamation. Very clear that we're to make known these things to every consecutive generation. Our praise is not just personal or in the church. It's for the uh, future generations of believers, the saints of God, bless God, and they make his glorious kingdom known. And these truths uh, that we are to make known uh, uh, to those who are not part of the kingdom yet, to show them the way, to show them the truth. And of course, we're, we're approaching the time of year where there might be greater opportunities to do this because of the Christmas season. And although people are getting farther and farther away of what the true meaning of that is, we can explain to them what it really does mean. So we ought to be looking for opportunities to proclaim the truth of God's kingdom in these coming days and weeks. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful today for who you are. And we do praise your name and lift you up because you are a great God, the only God. You are majestic and glorious beyond our comprehension. And Lord, you have displayed to us all these attributes that we should be thankful for because through them we're saved. Your grace and your mercy, your long suffering, your covenant love. Help us, Lord, to be uh, more vocal in these areas of, of, of your um, blessings upon us and of your uh, majesty and your, pers- uh, your mercy. And we just pray, Lord, you help us during this time of year and in the coming new year to proclaim these truths, not only uh, in our personal walk with you, but in our body of believers, in our homes and families, and Lord, to people who are lost around us. Give us your mercy and grace to do that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.